You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons Podcast. You can visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Church, I am Bill White, uh, one of the co-pastors here, and it's just it's just great to be with you guys. It's uh, you know, I love the in-person thing, but it's really great being online here, having that option, um, and it's just uh, yeah, it's a gift. I, I noticed we've got a couple of new folks around here. I want to expressly say, hey, we're really glad you're here. Uh, it takes some courage to show up in a new space. So uh, so thanks for honoring us by being with us today. Uh, at City Church, we're a radically welcoming community on a journey towards Jesus, joining him in the renewal of all things. That's who we are. And one of the things we like to do is we like to pray for our kids because we think kids are amazing. Um, so uh, the way we're going to do this is we're going to do this slightly differently, and it's going to be a little bit of a, of a madhouse, but I don't care. Uh, if, if there is a child under the age of, I don't know, 15 uh, in, on your screen, if you would unmute, and uh, if, if all the kids could just say hello real quick, because we need to hear your voices. Hello, kids. Say hi back to me. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hey. Hello. Hi. Hey, yeah. All right. Hey, really good to hear you guys. I'm going to pray God's blessing on you, okay? Okay. Uh, and kids, you got, got to listen in because this is for you. God, kids are awesome. Bless them. Keep them safe. Amen. Amen. Well, you guys are awesome. Hey, thanks for praying with me. Really appreciate hey. that. I'm going to turn it over to Brett hey. Rubio now. You can... Oh. <laughs> no, later. Please. <laughs> Love it. Love it. All right, Brenda Rubio, it's all you. See if you can bring us back to order. Oh man, it's, it's possible. There's some chaos in the background in my house too. I am not the parent out in the living room though. Hey, good morning, friends. Uh, yeah, it's really good. It's good to see you. Um, I just want to say just kind of out loud, uh, what Bill, I think was, you know, kind of going to as well. Like I know there are mixed emotions being on zoom this morning. You know, last week I felt kind of like, I'm like, oh, this is kind of like nostalgic, you know, a little bit because we've had enough of a break, you know, and feeling like there were more options we could give people. So I felt kind of nostalgic last week. And this week was a little bit more like, oh, I'm just feeling the weight of it, right? You know, just, it's been kind of a messy week. And I imagine some of you have been feeling that as well. I mean, we're all at different stages with the pandemics. The pandemic, you know, does your job, you know, give you what kind of flexibility, how exposed are you, vaccinated, unvaccinated, kids and dealing with schools or not. I just, I know everybody's kind of in a different spot, but we're all kind of feeling the weight of things being disrupted again and kind of everything being up in the air again. And what do we do and what do we don't do? And, you know, it's, I just want to acknowledge it. It's, it's been messy. And with that, I, it brought me back to this quote uh, that many of you may recognize from kind of way back, one of the first wave or two, you know, uh, of COVID, this quote that kind of made the circles. And, and I think for a lot of us was really, it, it expressed a lot about the desire in our heart. Uh, it's from a thinker writer named Sonia Renee Taylor. And it goes like this, we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal, other than that we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, 
one that fits all of humanity and nature. And so now it's, it's about two years later. Um, and how does this hit us now? You know, where, where are we feeling the opportunity? Where are we feeling the, are we ever going to get back to any kind of normal, you know, the old normal, the new normal two years on to still feel like we're sort of stuck in the middle. How do we, how do we grapple with that? How do we think about it? How do we hold that messiness? Um, uh, yeah, I, it, it's just, it's a real question. It's one that I'm, I'm working through as well. And then this last week, we had an additional layer to it because there was another anniversary uh, of sort of national importance as we were thinking about the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. And for many of us, that brought up emotions and it brought up questions. And I think particularly for many of us in sort of the religious community, because what happened at the Capitol wasn't just political, right? It wasn't just about, you know, Republicans versus Democrats, you know, that kind of thing, like a party allegiance sort of thing. But there were, there were bigger ideas and agendas and I would say idols, empires at work behind that event. And that's what so many of us were being like, we have to remember and we have to call out because it wasn't just about politics. It was about white supremacy. And it wasn't just about white supremacy, but it was white supremacy rooted in a Christian nationalism, a distortion of the Christian faith. And we actually have to remember it and we have to think about it. You know, then there's another layer. <laughs> Here's the other thing that was happening this week for so many people is that it's sort of the tail end of the Christmas season. And some of you may be saying, no, Brenna, that was two weeks ago. You're a little bit behind the times. No, in the traditional Christian calendar, this is actually, this last week was the end of the Christmas season. Because on January 6th, for millennia, what we have been remembering, it's not just a an insurrection, but it, it's a day that on the Christian calendar is called the day of epiphany, the day of revealing. And the traditional story that we'd be thinking about would be the story of the three kings, the three kings who come to see baby Jesus and to worship because the kings represent um, a larger picture of who Jesus actually came for, not just for the people of Israel, but for the entire world. So, so we have this, this season of epiphany that was being celebrated and remembered this last week too. But here's the thing, you know, as much as the three wise men are these kind of like cute, you know, characters that get added on to our nativity sets during the Christmas season, the story of the three wise men is not actually cute. It's not a gentle story. It's a brutal story. It's a story of a confrontation between good and evil, uh, between a power that would oppress, represented by King Herod in the story, and the power that wants to lift up, that wants to heal, represented by Jesus. So, so many, you know, incredible thinkers were posting this week, this, this juxtaposition of epiphany 
and the insurrection. And one post that I particularly appreciated, some of you may have seen it as well, was by a, a guy named Rich Viotis. He's a pastor in New York City. And what he wrote was this, a prayer on January 6th, the day of Epiphany and our remembrance of the insurrection. He said, may God's light lead us away from the false kings of our world, known by the violent manipulative ways of Herod to the true king found in the humble, non-coercive person of Jesus. And so what we're doing this morning is that we're going to take a little time and we're going to actually be thinking about the false kings and how they operate in our world, in our lives. And we're going to pick up the story right after the wise men have finished their visit to the infant Jesus. It's a brutal story. It's not cute. And uh, our friend Reuben has agreed to read it with us. So thank you, Ruben, for reading a not particularly pleasant passage for us this morning. Okay. Matthew 2.13, when the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refused to be comforted because they are no more. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Stories like that, it's kind of hard to add in that responsive line, isn't it? Thanks be to God for this really brutal story where babies, one-year-olds, toddlers were slaughtered all because of a king who was crazed by power. So we don't hear this story very much. I can't think of very many times in my Christian experience, right? That this was the story um, that was preached on, or maybe it was part of my children's Bible. Um, it, it just kind of gets skipped over a fair amount. And, you know, in reality, the New Testament doesn't have a whole lot about Jesus' childhood, which is an interesting thing, right? We have like some really descriptive narratives around Jesus' birth and a lot about Jesus' adulthood you know, Jesus' public ministry, but we don't have a whole lot uh, in the middle. Um, there are more stories that are found in, you know, this kind of collection of writings that's sometimes called the Apocrypha. More of those stories are included in the Roman Catholic version of the Bible than in the traditional Protestant version of the Bible, which is, you know, a whole other kind of interesting conversation. But even the Protestant version of the Bible, of the New Testament, has this story about the baby Jesus. This is one that everybody said, yeah, it's important. We need to remember this story about young Jesus. And yet 
it just doesn't get that much attention. And, and I feel curious about why. You know, part of it is just like, I mean, it seems like there's a surface level. Well, because it's not cute, right? In the Christmas season, we want the cute feel-good stories, the peace on earth stories. And this one, this one doesn't, doesn't do that for us. It takes us to some uncomfortable places. But I want to spend a couple minutes and I want to take it a little bit deeper. And to help us with that, um, we're going to explore an article that was written by um, an, an awesome leader. Some of you know, we actually have some people in our church who have, have been through uh, Erna Kim Hackett's leadership cohorts called Liberating, is it, that's Liberated Together. I was about to say the wrong thing, but Liberated Together with Erna Kim Hackett, uh, just an amazing leader based uh, up in the Bay Area. Um, and, and she wrote an article about white theology. We're going to drop the link in the chat for anybody who'd like to read the whole thing, but it was about why I stopped talking about racial reconciliation and started talking about white supremacy. And so we're going to, we're going to talk about some of Erna Kim Hackett's thoughts to help us understand why we like to skip over this story of Herod and his brutal response and the flight of Mary and Joseph and Jesus into Egypt. Why do we do that? Why do we skip this story? Well, the first answer that Erna Kim Hackett would suggest is because we don't like stories about systemic evil. We like stories that focus on individuals and about individual responsibility and individual morality. So the way she puts it is this, though there is a place for the individual in theology, white theology in profound syncretism with American culture has distorted the Bible to be solely about individual redemption. And some of you may have experienced that, right? Like you've had experience, whether it was because you were brought up in a church that focused a lot on kind of, you know, hey, you know, your personal quiet times, and have you personally prayed the sinner's prayer? And, you know, all of these things that actually, they're not bad. It's not bad to think about your personal life with God and your personal connection with God. But how often in those places did we also think about the community's connection with God and our connection as a community in the church with the larger community? How often did we talk about issues of justice and ethics? So often in the white American church, that's just, it's just not the focus, right? We're worried about individuals and how they're doing with God. What's their personal status? And then I would actually add in um, to this idea, it's not just individuals, but it's individual souls versus individual bodies. That it's become a lot more comfortable for the white American church to just focus on, I mean, it, it's not about practically how we're living our life, right? It's about our beliefs and it's about what's going on inside of our head and inside of our heart. Instead of having this like logical connection that then that would flow out naturally into our actions. And, and scholars would suggest that there's, there's an obvious reason why we would do that. It's because so much of our white American theology really centers in the American South. And in the American South, you want to focus on souls because you're doing horrible things 
to black and brown bodies. And so to be able to have any sense of rightness with God, you somehow have to ignore the physical conditions around you. You have to push all that to the side. You have to have this sort of split personality, split mentality at work to feel like this can possibly be okay. So the white American church is focused on individuals and individual souls. And this story just does not fit that narrative because this story is about a grossly oppressive system, about a leader who calls all of his followers to do something horrific, to go out and kill these tiny, innocent children. And the reality is that we know our systems as well have horrors like these embedded into them. So we think about COVID and we realize that, yeah, it's not the same experience for all of us, right? Some of us are more exposed than others. There were stories this week about those who worked in the fast food industry and how completely unprotected they have been over the course of the pandemic. Grocery workers, they're essential workers, right? Um, there, there've been whole communities, you know, the differential impacts based on race and ethnicity. Um, some of that about access to vaccines, some about misinformation, some about historical relationships between the community and the medical field, what abuses have happened in the past that have destroyed trust in the medical system. All of these ways there's, there's oppression built in to our structures. Is that something we're willing to talk about as a church, to grieve? Even this last week, there was the sentencing of the murderers of Ahmaud Arbery. And in, in some sense, a victory. And yet it reminds us even then of all the work that it took for that not to be covered up from the very beginning. The fact that it happened at all. Are we able to name the systems? Are we willing to do that as actually an act of faith? Because this story calls it out. And this story embedded in it is a lament, a collective crying out for brown bodies. We see it in verse 18. A voice is heard in Rama weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Are we willing to sit with the lament, to hear it? Erna Kim Hackett, you know, she goes on uh, in this article. And I think the second reason we skip over this story so often is related to what she calls Disney princess theology. And so some of you have maybe just heard a little bit from Erna Kim Hackett. That's probably the phrase that you might, you might remember, you might've heard before, Disney princess theology. So let me give just a little bit of a caveat as we get started. I love an approach to scripture that is all about using our imagination. 
where it's not just about coming to the text and like feeling like we have to sort of like be a scientist and dig into it, you know, and know the history. And I mean, that's good. But I love that sometimes we can just come to the text and sort of meditate with it and say, God, where do I find myself in this story? That's a beautiful thing. The problem is that sometimes we place ourselves wrong. Sometimes we misunderstand who we are in the story. And the only way to keep ourselves from doing that is to read it with other people as well. Other people who can challenge our perspectives and maybe help us hear the story differently. So some backstory um, that might be helpful here is thinking about why it was significant that Jesus and his family would escape to Egypt. So they're in Bethlehem, right? Or wherever they were when the, the wise men, they're, they're in Israel, uh, when the wise men come and, and they need to escape because Herod is threatening them. They've been warned in a dream. They need a route of escape. And it's significant that Egypt is where they go. Part of it is just to know that it makes sense historically, that it's just kind of like, yeah, that's, that's where you would go. It was, it was easy to get to. There was kind of a clear path from where they were. And actually, because the Jewish community was very spread out at that time, there was a large Jewish community in Egypt. So they would be able to find friends, relatives, a safe kind of landing space just by going to Egypt. But more than that, it's significant because it made sense thematically. Matthew, who's the, the writer of this book, of this story in scripture, he's Jewish himself, and that's primarily the audience that he's writing to. And so when he's talking to Egypt, he knows that the story that they're going to be thinking about and resonating with is the story of Moses, that what it's going to remind them of is that Jesus is like Moses. And Moses is an incredible figure in Jewish history, right? Incredibly significant. And I'm just curious, but if you drop in the chat, anybody who wants to drop in the chat, when you think Moses, what story do you think of? Give me a couple words, if you would, in the chat. And I know some of you are going, I'm not sure. And that's totally fine too. But those of you who do have a little bit more, yeah. What stories are you thinking of? The Ten Commandments? Yes. That's a good one. He's the one who brought the Ten Commandments. The parting of the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. Yes. Especially connected with that idea of Egypt. I see Barbara Sinclair, the burning bush, the reed basket. I mean, that we are coming up with all of these stories, right? The Exodus, 40 years in the wilderness. Yes. Yes. For the people of Israel, probably what would have popped most is what was just mentioned. Yes fighting with Pharaoh to let my people go. The exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, this sense that there is rescue to be had in the midst of oppression, that God sees your struggle, your enslavement, the brutality being exerted over you, and God cares, and God is going to bring you out of it. God will not leave you there. God is going to fight on your behalf. God will rescue you. There's liberation to come. A story of dramatic deliverance, right? And in the same way, Jesus and Jesus' family are experiencing deliverance in this story from the oppressive powers of Herod. Now, here's the problem. Let's go back to that idea that sometimes when we try to place ourselves in a story, 
Do we place ourselves correctly? So Erna Kim Hackett says this, as each individual reads scripture, again, outside that environment of the community that we need, each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They're Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They're Peter, but never Judas. They're the woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisees. They're the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world who enslaved both native and black people, to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society. And it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. So if we read this story and we see ourselves as Jesus and Mary and Joseph escaping the power of Herod, instead of seeing ourselves as Herod, as seeing ourselves as aligned with the oppressive powers, are we seeing ourselves correctly? That's the question of Disney princess theology. Now the reality is we're a diverse community. And so some of us listening this morning, it is true that the story of oppression and the story, the incredible reminder here that God sees you, that God cares and that God would rescue you, that absolutely is the story for some of us this morning. That is the word of comfort and encouragement. You know, for so long, Black theology has had such a resonance with the story of the Exodus, the story of liberation, that God cares, um, that Moses can say to Pharaoh, let my people go and God will make it happen. And in a similar way, this story has also had a lot of resonance for the black community. There's this beautiful piece of art that we're gonna put up on the screen here uh, by an artist named Henry Oswa Tanner. He was one of the first really widely known uh, African-American artists in the 1800s. Um, and this is his rendering of the flight to Egypt because it's such a story of encouragement of I'm known in my struggle. God sees me, God sees us and God's care, God cares. It's good to remember that. But for others of us, it's not our experience. Our primary experience is not one of oppression and it's dangerous for us to think that we are Jesus, Mary and Joseph in this story. It's not right, it's not true. It doesn't help us situate ourselves rightly in the world. You know, I think so many of us would agree the white American church has for so long has had such a persecution complex, right? It's, it's related even to some of the struggles we've had around COVID, right? Are, are we cooperating with society as a whole to address this problem or are we in tension because we see ourselves as the people who are, who are being persecuted, being told what to do? 
And the reality is the white church in America, we, we've had power, so much power, and we've done damage. Too often, we've looked away when we could have, could have helped. We've actually been part of unjust and oppressive systems. We haven't seen it, so we haven't named it, haven't grieved it, and we haven't turned around. We haven't done the work to be true allies in the fight for justice. And what this story invites us into is that work of grief, that first step to once again, look and say, yes, look, name it, name the damage that has been done. Grieve because a voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Will we see ourselves alongside Rachel? Will we weep? That's what it looks like to follow Jesus and not Herod, to name it. We're gonna end this morning just with a, a little bit of time for silence. Um, just a little bit of time to name within your own soul. Are you experiencing comfort because God sees you? Are you open to grieving and naming the injustices? If you'd like to, towards the end of this, this minute of silence, maybe you wanna drop a word or two in the chat just to name it collectively, what was on your heart. So as we enter that time, I want to read you the quote we started with one more time. Feel free to shut your eyes and just listen if you'd like to. Start to feel your breath slowing down a bit because you're just going to, you're just going to be, you're going to allow God to bring up anything that God might want to right now. Friends, we will not go back to normal. Normal never was. Our pre-corona existence was not normal other than we normalized greed, inequity, exhaustion, depletion, extraction, disconnection, rage, hoarding, hate, and lack. We should not long to return, my friends. We are being given the opportunity to stitch a new garment, one that fits all of humanity and nature.
feel free to add to the chat if you'd like to.